Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Well, my guest today has an amazing resume unlike anyone I know. Joe Mowgli is the former head coach of Coastal Carolina University and the former chairman and CEO of TD Ameritrade. I mean, there just aren't a lot of people out there who can be both an award-winning coach and a world-class CEO. And yet, Joe has an incredibly consistent leadership style no matter what he's doing. For him, it's all about the people he serves. Whether he's leading football players or salespeople, he knows it's not about him, it's about his team. They're the ones out there getting stuff done. And his job is to support them and serve them and coach them to success. When you approach leadership with a coaching mentality like that, everything changes. And Joe is the perfect leader to show us how it's done. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Joe Mowgli. I really want to dive deep into how you lead, but but first I have to ask you, you've had so much success as a football coach and as a business leader. How do you balance the, the combination of being confident, the confidence it takes to succeed with the humility to stay grounded? Well, the question's a good question. One of the key qualities a leader has to have is rec- the recognition that I call love, and in this case, I call it the commitment to well-being of others. And you've got to recognize that leadership is not about you. It's about your people. So by definition, just the fact that you understand that humbles you, whether it's in the business world, whether it's in the military, whether it's in education, whether it's in football. Uh, it's not about you. It's about others. So when you achieve things, you recognize what you've done is you feel proud because you've done a good job organizing, bringing the group together, doing all the things you need to do. But they were the ones that executed that. And you recognize they're the ones that you're trying to take care of. They're the ones you're trying to serve. So just by definition, that whole principle of commitment and love keep, keeps you grounded. You know, you you mentioned love, you know, and, and not many business leaders would bring up love, you know, as one of the things that they believe in. And, you know, and I know you're, you know, really hard driving, charging executive, yet, you know, you use this idea of love. You know, why is that? Well, I had my first head high school job when I was 22 years old. And I grew up as a gang kid in New York City. I had never been more than 25 miles or so outside of the city. And my first job was a place called Archibald Academy, Claymont, Delaware. By the way, total segue, that's also where Joe Biden went and all of his children went. And, <laughs> uh, and so for me to leave New York and go there, there had to be another reason. And I knew that it was because of the impact they knew it would have on the kids. It wasn't just football. So why was I doing this? And I came up with what I, months I thought about this, it came up with my leadership philosophy, which was stand on your own two feet, take responsibility for yourself, treat others with dignity and respect, and live with the consequences of your actions. So as you move forward in, 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 in your, your career plan, whether that's, full, again, regardless of, of what that might be, that was my postulate. That's how I built the foundation upon which everything I did later on. So whether it's my personal life or whether it's the business world or whether it's the world of football, that's a little bit what gave me a competitive advantage, but that's also what made me tick. That's what allowed me to do whatever I've done. It seems that business leadership, thankfully, has evolved from what I would call the boss mentality to, to one of being a coach. 
Tell us a story of when it hit you that being a coach would be a key to your business success. My goal was to play football and baseball in college. Uh, my girlfriend got pregnant. So I needed to take on bigger responsibility, but I still want to go to college. Now, my father never finished eighth grade. He was an Italian immigrant. We sold bananas and apples, you know, in the Bronx. And I worked for him from the time I was 10 to the time I was 22. So he thought this was okay because now I should work full-time in the fruit store. I really thought I needed to go to college. And uh, he said, well, remember, there's no money. I said, okay, I'll figure that out. And he said, well, you think about this. You really should think about this. Because, you know, you got responsibilities, your father, your husband, et cetera. I said, I will. A couple of days later, I said, Dad, I, I really think I got to go to college. I'm going to go to college. He said, son, you're making a big mistake now. Just put that in perspective with your own child, 18 years old, get ready to go to college, and he's being told by his father, a tough situation, being told by his dad that this is not what he's supposed to do. Okay, so my freshman year, I'm responsible for my, my wife and my daughter and 100% of my education. I'm driving a New York City taxi cab. I'm driving a truck for the post office out of Old Chelsea Station on 18th Street and working at my father's fruit store. Now, David, this is going to surprise you, but that's probably not the most fun a typical college freshman ever had. <laughs> and, and it was also the first year I didn't have sports. So I went to Fordham Prep on the same campus as Fordham University in the Bronx, and I had a good career there. They offered me a coaching job to, to be an assistant of the football team. So I did that. So my sophomore, junior, senior year, I coached high school ball, worked at my father's fruit store the rest of the year, majored in economics, really wanted to go to Wall Street. But by the time I got to be a senior... And this is where it hit me. I really loved the impact I had on the players. I, I thought I could be a head coach. I could have a career there. But I know I want to go to Wall Street. So I decided if I get a head high school job, I would pursue that. I got a head high school job. Archbishop Academy, Claymont, Delaware. That's where I began at, at 22 years old. So when it was time to go to the business world, I had already been coaching 16 years. I'd gone through a divorce. I had four kids. And so Merrill Lynch puts me in their institutional MBA training program. 16 years as a coach, I transferred to the business world, and Merrill Lynch gives me the opportunity. There are 26, 26 people in the class, 25 MBAs, and one football coach. <laughs> and everybody said, this football guy's never going to make it here. But I did. But it was all based on those principles. I knew I could have an impact on others. It didn't matter what the field was. You know, a lot of times you, you could be in one profession, okay, like you were in coaching, and now you're shifting, you're going to Merrill Lynch, uh, you're going to this business world, you're hanging with all the, these MBAs, and you might think that your style would have to change or you'd have to do something different, but you took your coaching mentality into that job. Was that something you knew you were going to do from the, the get-go? Yeah, I didn't know anything else. So I recognized they had, had a far more sophisticated academic pedigree than I did. I recognized they had far more understanding. They knew all the buzzwords going on. I didn't know how to spell the word stock. I couldn't spell the word bond. I, I didn't understand that piece. But I understood kind of the general concept of what was going around. And I kind of felt I knew I could do that. I knew I would fit in. And I thought that would be a good fit for my skill sets. And it'd be something I'd really love and be passionate about. So they hadn't done that. Most of them had, had kind of privileged upbringings, which I didn't have. For me to be able to compete in that group, I just needed to learn from an academic perspective all the different things that happened. And that wasn't necessarily easy for me to be able to do, but I did that. And the things I was good at were the things that really made a difference. You immediately, you know, within two years, you were the top producer in that group. What was it that separated you? I mean, what made you so good at getting it done? 
Well, it was four years, and I was number one producer in the world. Okay, so that, okay, but, well, that's that, even that, better. But I'm proud, it is better. But I'm proud of that. The uh, no, I think that the separation was part of it. I just shared, and that was I already gone through a real life, a real career, etc. So my maturity and my ability to handle myself under stress was far beyond what theirs were. I also was a great listener, so. I didn't need to raise my hand. I didn't, didn't need to show off in terms of what I knew. I wanted to keep learning and learning more. So when I became a sales guy, it was more an opportunity to learn. I learned how my portfolio managers, the people I was covering, I was at fixed income bonds. And I learned their job as well as, almost as if, if they had to go on vacation for a week, I could take over for them. I knew how they get paid. I knew how they got their bonuses, et cetera. Well, I took all that information to try to develop portfolio strategies that would help them do a better job than what they had to do in a way where we could do the business, but Merrill Lynch would take no risk. Well, those were home runs. Somebody else was doing a $10 million trade. I'm doing a billion dollar trade. So I had a maturity level. The others didn't. I listened really well, but I did a wonderful job handling stuff under stress. Can you give me an example of, of when you had that kind of stress and you, you rose to the occasion? Every day you have stress with regard to being a bond salesman. You're on a trading floor. You got to be able to get business done. There's a lot of stuff going on. A typical retail salesperson probably covers 500 accounts. A typical institutional salesperson probably covers 15 or 20. But even that's probably too many. So we put together teams and there were like four of us and we picked our best accounts and we covered Four of us covered 35, 40 accounts. Now, all of a sudden, I'm in charge. Now, the only reason why I have credibility is because I became the number one salesman. So that gave me credibility with the rest of the sales force. But what I did was I changed the entire United States organization to you have to work in teams, and we're no longer going to grade you on your production credit. So if you have J.P. Morgan as a client, you can have great production credits, but if you're sixth with them, you can do much better. So to me, it's all about reaching your potential. So I said, if you're not number one, with the account, we expect to be number one and number two. If you're not, if you're number three, you got one more year to get to number one at number two. That would determine your bonus. So I don't care how big your number is. If you're sixth, you should be far better than what you're doing. You're not going to keep that account anymore. So when I did that, that had never been done on Wall Street before. And when I did that, our teams reluctantly bought in, frankly, because of what I had already done. Then he had national responsibility. Then they gave me global responsibility. I did the same thing in Europe. I did the same thing in Asia. I did the same thing in Japan. Uh, that was, at the time, incredibly never thought of. But that was a home run, home run, home run. And that was almost easy for me to see that was where we needed to go. You know, you talk about the importance of, of finding your competitive advantage. How did you go through the process of doing that? And what would you recommend to others? The reality is, David, in my opinion, I think most of us really don't know who we are. We think we do. We say we do, but we don't. So, for example, if you have a career decision to be able to make, you got to go, you know, your, you know your own skill sets. What are the skill sets required to be really, really good at a particular job? Whatever it is, do I have those skill sets? If I don't, I don't care if my mother or father's in it. I don't care who wants me in it. Don't go down that path. You'll never be really happy in that. But if you do have those skill sets, you still got to ask yourself one more question. Is this something to be passionate about? And if you can answer yes to the skill sets and the passion, you picked a real good career path for you to go down because you probably have a competitive advantage over the other people in that. Um, if not, you're going to wind up having a job. Jobs are dra a drag. A career path is really something special. So that's where I think you find a competitive advantage, whether it's football, whether it's your personal life, whether it's business, whether it's Wall Street, whether it's Yum, wherever it is. Knowing who you are 
at translating that to the business world and making decisions based on that is absolute competitive advantage. Yeah, very few people really get to that core essence. And when you have it, it's very powerful. You know, in, in business and sports, you have to develop a winning game plan. And you've certainly done that throughout your entire career on both sides of the fence. Tell us the the story on, on how you got your players ready to play in an absolute, you know, freezing environment. <laughs> Montana. All right, so by this time, I think it was our, I think it was our third year at, at the Coastal, and we had already turned it around. We were doing well. And again, with me, the leadership philosophy, take responsibility for yourself. There are no excuses, none. It's too easy to make excuses. My coach doesn't like me. My teacher doesn't like me. I got a problem with my girlfriend. My parents don't understand me. You know, the Fed is too aggressive. Uh, you know, my legal department is, is, is too much on me. Compliance doesn't get it. One excuse after another, after another, after another. Well, my leadership philosophy, there are no excuses. So we're getting ready. We're like 11 and 1 or something, and we're ranked 7th in the country. We're playing Montana. It's ranked 4th in the country. But we're playing at Montana, and that's going to be the coldest day in the history of college sports. So the entire time we're playing in minus 26-degree weather. So we're getting ready. Now, we're having a great season. We're making some noise here. And I just sensed a different attitude in the room kind of getting ready, and I stopped the meeting at about half an hour. I said, guys, what's going on? And one of our coaches said, Coach, you know what? I mean, we're playing Montana. Now, we know we could play with Montana, but not minus 26 degrees. He said, we just, fit, we just played last week, and we practiced in 72-degree weather. We got 15 guys on the team that don't own coats. We got 15 guys on the team that never physically seen snow. So I said, okay, so the problem is the weather. I said, let's stop. I said, recognize what we're doing is making a mis- make, using an excuse. So we're going to lose the game, and we're going to blame it on the weather. So therefore, it's okay subconsciously, whenever you make an excuse, you're letting yourself off the hook. We're not doing that. So if that's the issue, then now how do we fix this? Let's address the weather. So we started to contact people that, that we had some relationship with or knew somebody that knew somebody that had, had experience doing research like in the Arctic. And like, how are we going to handle this? All right. Now we spent every we spent thirty minute meeting every day about how we're going to handle the the cold, and we practiced that way, even though it was only seventy five degrees at our place. We made believe it was like like minus twenty five. We went there a day early. We were getting off the plane. I remember turning around to the guy and said, I'm preparing you for this. Once you get off the plane, you're going to get a shock of cold like you never felt in your life before. So bottom line, game day comes, and we're dressed all over the place. I may have a picture here somewhere that I can show you. Like just You can only see this in my face because I'm so covered up. We have special savon, et cetera. But what we did, we had one bench. The players come off the field. The first thing you do is take your helmet off. They didn't take the helmet off. They kept the helmet on till they get to the bench. They sit on the bench. Then they take it off, put it between their feet. On each side, we have these little little tor- torpedo heaters, which are like little jet engines. They're shooting heat under, underneath. We have radiant heaters above our head. So, so we act like we're going to be on the field for an hour, but we're only going to... We're going to be on three or four or five minutes at a time. So by the time we go back on the field, our feet are warm, our shoes are warm, our hands are warm, our head is warm, and we're going back on the field. Okay. Coaches can be very charismatic, can be very smart. I made a living coaching football for 25 years. Uh, tremendous respect for the profession. But we, we can all be blockheads. So part of that blockhead mentality is, hey, don't worry about the cold. It's not that cold. It's not really raining. It's not that hot. You know, it's my no matter. You're tougher than that. And here we got these little punks coming in from coastal Carolina that live at the beach. They're the beach boys, and they're playing us. We're the mountain men. We're the grizzlies. We're the cowboys. Okay, they're coming to our turf. 
they're not going to have a chance here. Well, I did my homework on this, and I saw that in December in Montana, it averages 22 degrees. They never had two, minus 26 degrees. So that's where the attitude is. When you see people come out in the field in real cold, like short sleeves, because they're tougher than you are, all right, we're warming up. They come out in the field wearing short sleeves. They go, you yeah, know, we got a shot here. We got a shot here. <laughs> and and uh, we're doing real well. At the end of three minutes, we're down 14 nothing. Oh, boy. <laughs> But we score the next 35 points unanswered. At halftime, it's 35-14. We win the game, and the biggest reason why we won the game wasn't because we did an incredible job of executing our field. We did a pretty good job of that, but because we were prepared for the biggest obstacle we had, which was the cold. There are no excuses. It doesn't matter what the environment might be like or what profession you're in or whether it's your family. No, there are no excuses. You gotta figure out how to get it done. Have you ever wondered what David is thinking as he interviews our guests each week? Or have you been interested in hearing David's take on some of the questions that he asks his guests? Well, I do, and I know a lot of you do too. My name is Kula Callahan, and together with David, I host the Three More Questions podcast that airs every Monday. These episodes are just about 15 minutes, and in them, I ask David three questions that dive deeper into the themes of his episode with his guests. David shares incredible insights and stories from his career leading Yum! brands, and all of his answers are super practical and inspiring. Like this great insight David shared in one of our most recent Three More Questions episodes. I think you got to realize that the most important thing you can do is have great people, the right amount of people, and people who are going to take your enterprise to the next level. So you don't delegate the idea of recruiting. You are very engaged with the recruiting process, what's working, what's not working. And when you have a chance as a leader to bring in a top talent, you go after that person personally. You support the people on your team. You help them get that person. And you do everything you can to bring the star players into your organization and then keep them. You know, one way to keep your recruiting needs down is to keep the great talent that you have. And that, that's why I think it's so important also to, to really create a great culture. Get the Three More Questions podcast in your feed each Monday and dive even deeper into the episodes you know and love. Just subscribe to How Leaders Lead wherever you get your podcasts. You talk about the importance of eliminating yes men. Let's say someone falls in that category. Have you ever been able to turn a person like that into a truth teller? So first of all, the, the person is a yes man. You figure that out pretty quickly. But what's more important than that is whether or not they're doing their job. Now, whether or not they're giving me good feedback is one thing, but that's sort of on me. If they're doing a good job in their job and they're yesing me to death, okay, I'm happy. They're batting 350. I'm okay. You yes me all you want as long as you keep batting 350. You're doing a great job running technology. You're doing a great job uh, back in Merrill Lynch running a, a Japanese institutional sales force. Great, that's okay with me. You be as much of a yes man as you want. Of the people that are good at your job that you know give you honest feedback, and I want that, I welcome that all the time. The, uh, they're the people that are, that are gonna be your more valuable players. But remember, it's, it's a twofold thing. It's not the fact they give you good feedback. It's the fact they get their job done, and then they also give you good feedback. Then they help you think more thoughtfully, but they're getting their job done. If you're getting your job done, I don't care if you're a yes man. You know, along these lines, I, I got to segue for a second and have you tell the story of how you had 
your stepson try out for one of your teams and why? This is, this is, this was, I, I enjoyed this one. When I decided to go back to football, I spent two years in Nebraska, and then the UFL was around then, and it was their third year, and the owners of the UFL were people uh, uh, like uh, Bill Hambrecht, Paul Pelosi, Nancy's husband, uh, the guy that was CEO of First Boston. So they had plenty of money to pour into the league, and they spent a tremendous amount of money the first couple of years, and frankly, they were struggling because of that. They spent too much money. They ran it poorly as a business, but they hired Jim Fossil, was the head football, one of the head coaches, Won a Super Bowl with the Giants. Uh, Denny Green played in the Super Bowl with the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, Marty Marty uh, Marty Schottenheimer, fifth winningest coach in history of the NFL. Jerry Glanville, who wasn't quite as big as the other guys, but a big personality. But all NFL guys, and yeah, you know, period. So we had we had a franchise in Omaha called the Omaha Nighthawks. And Jeff Jagodzinski, who was a previous head coach at Boston College and offensive coordinator at Tampa Bay, he was the head coach, but they weren't doing well, and they were firing him. Plus, they were business people. They were Wall Street people that owned the league. And uh, they thought, with my background, they thought it would actually be a pretty good choice to be the head coach in Omaha Niles, which I was excited about. So I've got that. Now, so we have drafts. We have tryouts. We have all those things, kind of a little bit similar to the NFL, but tryouts go to matter. So we had three or four tryouts all around. And one of those was in Dallas. Now, my stepson went to SMU. And he was either in SMU at the time or he just graduated from SMU, but he was still in Dallas. So... Jeff, Jeff did play high school football. He, he played on the JV, and he was a backup. Okay. But he played, he could pitch a baseball. So he could throw a ball, okay. But he was slow. He was all those things. So just as a goof, we said, you know, why don't you just show up? Because it was an open tryout. Why don't you show up? Now, most of the guys are college athletes. Most of, why don't you show up? Just kind of go off a quarterback and just kind of let's play around with that. So he does that. So, so he's, he's with the quarterbacks. All right, so by the way, at the end, he brings everybody, he's breaking the team down and he showed a little possessed, but nobody knows except me and one other guy. So later on, the staff's getting together and say, okay, which of the kids we want to keep? And then we get around the quarterback and the quarterback coach and offensive quarter says, okay, well, this kid, you know, 16, but that's Jeff, that's my stepson. He goes, okay, forget about him. So I go, whoa, whoa, what do you mean forget about him? He goes, well, he can't throw, he can't run, he can't do this, he can't do that. I said, yeah, but do you see his leadership? He was enthusiastic the entire time. He broke the kids out at the end. He goes, coach, he said, he can't play for us. I said, well, we don't know what a leadership is, and we don't know a guy like that could become a really good athlete. you got to coach him. And I could see all the faces in the room going, oh, my God, this guy's our head coach? Oh, my God. So I let the guys go around. I said, well, let's debate it. I let that go around for seven, eight minutes, I said. Oh, and one, one of the things was, uh, you know, and he's really slow. I said, well, how do you know he's really slow? We've had his 40 time. I said, well, what's his 40 time? And he goes, th then they take out his notes, and they go, it's 40 times 5-4. Now, that's really, really, really bad for those of your <laughs> listeners that don't necessarily know that. But then they ask another question. I said, I said well, what's his experience? And he goes, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff was funny. He wrote on the four form that he filled out. Other guys, you know, I, I played for, I was a quarterback at, you know, Texas, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he goes, and he goes, well, my experience, I was a backup JV player in high school, but I threw the ball around with my buddies. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the guys are looking at me and said, Coach, you're really kidding me here. And then I stopped and I started laughing. I said, guys, that's my stepson. This was just a goof. And everybody just cracked up and it was just a fun thing. They cracked up, but they were relieved I wasn't a nut job. But that, <laughs> that was a great story. I don't get a chance to tell that much. That was a great story. What do you think is the leadership lesson from that? Number one, you got to be totally objective in terms of who you're evaluating. But as you do that, there are intangibles that you might see in an individual that might require a little bit more uh, look. 
give them a little bit longer look for the, for those reasons. But again, you don't know what you have until you've had a chance to really work with somebody under stress. Now, technically, everybody in a tryout's under stress. But the leadership principles, what are the skill sets you need to get the job done? What are the skill sets of the candidates you're looking at to get that job done? And if they have those, that's somebody you can look at. Now, if they have that and they have some sort of kind of the intangible quality around them, attitude, sense of humor, leadership, whatever it might be, well, those are pluses. But again, if you don't have the right person, if you don't have the right skill sets, if you don't have the right athlete in these situations to do what they need to do to get the job done, you can't, you can't recruit the kid. You can't, you can't hire the kid. You can't play the guy. You know, I thought you were going to say it was just it created the fun and camaraderie you needed to have with your with your group of coaches. Okay, so I think you can have fun and camaraderie, but you got to get the job done first. All right. So you so in this case, I made them all. This was funny, really funny. And I thought we I want our guys to laugh. But far more importantly than that, I want us really prepared to put together a good game plan. I want to make sure the game plan we're putting together is stuff that our guys can execute. I want to make sure that no matter how sophisticated our strategy is, we're smart enough to break it down really in in its simplest forms. By the way, uh, David, whether it's Yum or whether it's Ameritrade, whether it's Merrill Lynch, or whether it's Coastal Carolina football, that it's got to be simple enough for your people to execute. So it sounds good in a boardroom. It sounds good when you're talking to the press. But if it's not simple enough, your people can't execute it. So the wisdom is you have all the contingencies here and the plus and minus here, but then you take it and break it down so your group can execute. And that's what I have to have first to my staff or my executives. And then on the way, we'll make it as much fun as possible. Just by people's senses of humor, somebody kind of, you know, that's where it happens most. It's not, you don't try to create the environment. It's just part of the environment of the people you handle. You know, you you had back to business. You you had incredible success at Ameritrade and, and uh, really turned the business around, grew the business exponentially. Amazing results, and then you end up selling it to uh, Swab. You know, take us through how you thought about that, because at that point in time, I'm sure this this had to be your baby. Well, it was my baby from the beginning. So the 2006. So I began there in 2001. In 2006. We were having private discussions in Chicago at some private room someplace about whether or not it made sense. If we had done the deal at that time, I I would have been the CEO of the combined company. But Chuck became uncomfortable with it. We just dropped it all. We went went, went, went our separate ways. Then around 2017, I get a call from Walt Bettinger, who's the CEO of Schwab. And, you you know, we always thought this made sense. We should be looking at this. Now, I already stepped out as CEO, so I'm not going to run the place. He's going to run the place. And I'm chairman. Now, I believe strongly in this whether it's your baby or not, you always got to do what you really believe is the right thing for the overall organization, whether that's your team, whether it's Ameritrade, whether it's Yum, whether it's your family, whatever it is. And I thought the combination of what Ameritrade had done and what Ameritrade had, had, had gone through, we went from $24 billion in client assets to $1.7 trillion. We went from $700 million market cap to a $24, $25 billion market cap. But... We were really good on the transaction and the trading. Schwab had begun gathering assets from back in 1975, and they were, had a great brand, and they were great at what they did in terms of gathering assets. They had like $6 trillion in assets, something along those lines. And, and they were great in gathering assets. We were great in the online trading place. The combination of those, especially in an environment where uh, transaction fees were going to zero, which they did, you got to have a lot of assets. 
that will offset that. So if you have seven or eight trillion dollars in assets, you make a 25 basis point tweak someplace, that's billions of dollars, right? So that will easily offset not charging $5.95 or $6 or $7 for, for a trade. So I always believe the combination of the two would be the premier private client business in the United States focused at the middle masses, some high net worth individuals. But I recognize we don't have all the things that truly high net worth families need to have. I understand that. But there's a lot of, again, we got $8 trillion in assets. There's a lot of people out there that can benefit from what we've got. I always thought that was by far the best thing long-term for Ameritrade. And I recognized that one day we were going to do that trade, that meant probably, you know, we're going to have to give up our name, probably going to move on. But that was the right thing to do. And I think too often executives, CEOs very much influence the board. And uh, too often they want to do a deal that is in their best interest and they don't want to do a deal that's not in their best interest. Of course, they never say that. And they sway the board one way or the other based, based on that. You're thinking about yourself then. Again, it's not about you. It's about the people you're responsible for. Doing the Schwab deal makes Schwab far, far more better than they were. It takes Ameritrade to a level that we would not have been able to get to without that. Now, the sacrifice, it was, this was a sad part. You know, we gave up our name. Uh, we gave up our control. But we did that because we thought long-term it was the right thing for our shareholders and our clients. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Joe Mowgli in just a moment. Great leaders like Joe understand that it's all about the people they serve, and they know how to unlock the power of those people working together as a team. That's certainly the leadership style of Steve Kerr, head coach of the Golden State Warriors. It's very natural, very human for all of us to come in when you're leading an organization to want to act like you've you've got all the answers, but it's actually much more powerful if you're comfortable in your own skin of walking into a room and getting command of the room with your personality, with your values, with your communication, and then really openly admitting, hey, I need help in this area. I think that's one of the most powerful things a leader can do because you're trying to empower the people around you. And if they know that you actually need their help, they're not going to look at you as weak. That's probably the fear that some of us have as new leaders. I can't let anyone know I have a weakness. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. Because if you know what you're missing, then you're going to be able to fill that void and the, and the company or the team is going to be stronger as a result. And that person is going to feel really good about being counted on to provide that information. With the NBA season really starting to heat up, it's the perfect time to go back and listen to my entire conversation with Coach Kerr, episode 63, here on How Leaders Lead. Then you have this monumental decision that you have to make again, you know, which is what am I going to do next? And you decide to go back into coaching. What made you return to coaching? I have a feeling it's your spiritual soundness. <laughs> oh, that, that, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think that was a good thing for me to do. And uh, I, by the way, over the span of the last five decades of my life, any serious decision I had to make, I went back to that spiritual soundness exercise. Does this really make sense for me? Uh, so I stepped down in 2009. So I was responsible for the company from 2001 to 2008. Our last five years, we had a 500% return. That includes the financial crisis when Wall Street was blowing up and the world was challenging the financial system of the United States. That never happened before. It was happening then. And uh, 
we were number one in the world in what we had done and, and, and a shareholder return versus any 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 publicly traded company in the financial world in the globe. Now, this is Ameritrade doing this. This is not Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch doing this. This is like Wake Forest winning the national championship. This is this was something really special we were doing, but we did it right. We didn't take the risk that everybody took on the balance sheet. We weren't investing in toxic assets. We did the right thing. We did it right. So when I stepped down, the board asked me to become chairman. I said, I'd be proud to be chairman. So I was chairman. And um, I had never been, been more in demand in my life. Now, remember, David, this is coming off the financial crisis. So there were major, major financial firms really, really struggling. I had a couple incredible, crazy, crazy athletic superstar type of opportunities to take over a couple of real, real, real major names. But I didn't step down from Meritrade to do that. One of the reasons why I stepped down is because I thought there might be something else I wanted to do with my life. And if there were, you know, then I can't have the responsibility I've always had for Meritrade because that'll always dictate what I'm going to do, my responsibility to Meritrade. So I stepped stepped out. I was offered the possibility of a television show, all sorts of different things. Then I get a call from a group of alumni at Yale asking me, their football job might be open. Would I be interested? In, would I be interested in a job? Now, this was a regular phone, but I remember looking at my phone like this and thinking, "Guys, I'm not coached for 24 years." And he said, "We know that, but we spend a lot of time looking at the skill sets the head coach is supposed to have. We really believe you have those. In fact, you've got competitive edge the other guys don't have. There's only one problem. Oh yeah, what's that? In 140 years of college football, nothing like this has ever happened." So it's going to take a special president that thinks outside the box to be able to do that. But why don't you think about it? I did. For six months, spiritual soundness. At a time in life where I could do anything I wanted to. Going back to football. Remember I said I wanted to be a coach when I was 20, continuing coaching when I was 23 years old because of the impact I had on others? I felt that in the business world. That's what I felt. That's what gave me the most satisfaction. The business world, coaching, impact I've had on others. And so now it was an opportunity to potentially go back to coaching. And I thought... I still knew I could have an impact on others, and I could really help boys kind of really grow up and become men. At a time in my life, I could do anything I wanted. I didn't think I could do anything that mattered to me more than that, or that was more that was more special to me than that. And a little piece of this may have been originally when I got out of coaching to go to Wall Street. My goal was to be the head coach at a major, major school, you know, Notre Dame, Michigan, Ohio State, wherever it might be, and that never happened. So maybe there was a little piece of me that kind of unfinished business where I wanted to go back, kind of prove myself as a head coach. But that's why I went back to football. I spent two years in Nebraska, one year in the United Football League. Then I got a call to coach at Coast Carolina. And, you know, when you did that, I understand there were a lot of naysayers. Even though you'd been in coaching for a long time, a lot of people said, oh, they're hiring you because you've made a lot of money. You'll be a big donor for the school someday. How do you deal with naysayers like that? Well, number one, one of the things, and I, I don't know how you've handled this, but for 25 years or so, I don't watch myself on TV. I don't watch myself being interviewed. I don't read an interview about myself. There's been a book written about my life. I've not read it. I've not read it. It was written 12 years ago. I've not read the book. So when I do those things, I've not listened to blogs. There's, no matter how good it is, and most of the time it's good, but there's always something in it. That's not the way I meant it. I think that's going to hurt somebody else. There's going to be an issue, or somebody's coming at for the wrong reasons. And I don't want to get bogged down with negative. I got to have positive energy in my life. So if I'm reading all those things, I'm going to allow, no matter how good it is, that one negative piece is the one that's going to bother me. So I want to keep that out of my life. So the naysayers, number one, I'm not bothering with them. I know what I'm doing. And when I went to Coastal, as you pointed out, like, you know, frankly, they hated me in the beginning. They really hated me in the beginning. And all I asked people, just why don't you just give me a shot? 
But people that said, oh, this is a business guy who came down, he bought the job, they didn't do the homework on me. Uh, I coached for 16 years. I had been two years in Nebraska when you United Football. I was already back three years. They had not done their homework. So I'm not going to pay too much attention to them. No, but at the end of the, the, end of the day, uh, I knew we probably were going to struggle in the beginning. We did, but we started winning right away, which we're very, very, very pleased with, very, very, very fortunate about. But, but the naysayers, you know, they're not the ones in the middle of the arena. They're not the ones making the decisions. They're not the ones on the field. They're not the ones calling the shots. They're not the ones that got to worry about what, what young stock price is. They're not, that's not their job. But in football especially, everybody's got an opinion. <laughs> and, you know, even we win, we lose, whatever it is, you know, if we win by 30 points, well, you know, he should have done a little better, better job attacking the perimeter. Or they gave up <laughs> two touchdowns. There's always somebody somebody's going to be critical about. But I was not, I was not welcome initially at Coastal Carolina. An example of that, my first year there, I got four tickets, four driving tickets, uh, speeding tickets. Two were f- about 40-something into 35. They were right by campus. So even the, <laughs> the policemen are coming after me, right? <laughs> so now- we won right away. Again, I was conference coach of the year. We're going to the playoffs. We win the conference. We win, we win in the playoffs. Everything's great. And by the way, our kids weren't graduating. And our kids were getting in trouble. Now our kids are graduating. They're doing well. All this. So I go from, we don't want this guy. Like, you know what? This is kind of a good guy. And then I said, you know, this is my home now. Then I became part of the family. So my empirical evidence on that, my first eight months on the job, I got four speeding tickets. In the last 10 years, I've been pulled over nine times. No speeding tickets. <laughs> so, I, you, can't, you, you can't have more better empirical evidence than That's, that. That says it all, Joey. You know, this has been so much fun, and, and I want to have some more with the lightning round of questions that I do. Now, are you ready for this? I'm ready. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. I want to warm up a little bit. Okay, there okay. you go. I'm ready to go. Okay, Coach, here we go. What's the one word others would use to best describe you? Impact on others, that's three words, but that's the best I can do. What's the one word you would use to best describe you? Impact on others. Who would play you in a movie? Well, there are three people being discussed. Russell Crowe, Kevin Costner, and Dennis Quaid. We will see what happens with that one day down the road. (laughs) Have Have you seen the script? I've not seen the script, but a studio has bought the life rights, uh, my life rights, and the book rights for the book that was written about me. And that has slowed down the last five, six months because of the Hollywood writer's strike. Hey, Joe, I think you should play it. I think that's the answer. Myself? If you could be one football coach, past or present, who would it be beside yourself? You know, I always, growing up, I learned a lot by studying Lombardi, but there was another guy that I learned a lot from, and it was John Wooden totally opposite personality from Lombardi. And I think if I could be the type of coach that I'd really want to be, although I kind of have the passion of Lombardi, but the wisdom of John Wood. If you could be one person for a day beside yourself, anybody other than a football coach, who would it be? Harry Truman. And the reason why I say that is because the decision he had to make to drop the atom bomb is probably one of the most stressful, critical decisions ever made in the world of mankind. So we worry about stress, like whether or not you're going to make the team and try out, and he's deciding whether or not he's going to drop the atom bomb on Japan. And so, uh, you know, I'd go with him. But there'd probably be, for one day, for one day, I could probably give you 20 names. Yeah. Uh, do you have a hidden talent? I don't know if it's hidden. I think I'm a very, very good listener. I want to tell you the truth is, you know, I can really sing, but I can't sing. I want to tell you, I, play piano. I can't play the piano. I hear, but what I think I'm good at, I like bourbon, and I enjoy, enjoy blues, the blues music, and I enjoy slow dancing. So I think one day I'd like to become the blues singing 
bourbon sipping, slow dancing man. <laughs> that sounds like a good country song. I may steal that from you. What, what's something about being a CEO you'd only know if you've been one? The stress under which you've got to make decisions. That's it. If you're not in that seat and you've got 10,000 or 100,000 or 1,000 or 500 people that, that you're responsible for, there's a lot of responsibility associated with that. And you don't know that if you're not in that seat. What would your answer be for a football coach? It'd be the same thing. You don't know, being, being in the seat, right? The decisions you got to make under stress, whether or not you're going to go for two, whether or not you're going to fake a punt, whether or, whether or not you're going to go for it on fourth down. If you don't make those decisions, you're going to be totally hard and be criticized. The world doesn't really know from day to day, week to week, month to month, what a CEO is doing. But you know, week to week, what a football coach is doing. There's more media type of pressure or a fan type of pressure on a coach than might be on a CEO. The first thing that comes to your mind when I say Deion Sanders. I gotta say, unbelievable. When he began at Jackson State, I thought, you know, is he really gonna do this? And, but he did, he did, he really did this. Then he went to Colorado and all the changes he's making, everybody's critical about him. I think he's probably making the right changes. And now he's got this incredible euphoric uh, perspective on him because of the couple wins that he's had. And, uh, uh, and his attitude, people criticize him in front of the, the media because of the way he's handling interviews. That's the way he's always handled interviews. So, no, I think I got a lot of respect for the guy and what he's done. I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is. So I would say unbelievable. If I turned on the radio in your car, what would I hear? You'd hear an eclectic group of music. You would hear, uh, you would hear country. You would hear classical rock. You would hear international stuff. You would hear classical. You would hear Italian stuff. Uh, you'd hear blues. Uh, the, I do like different types. I love music. I really do love music. Uh, so you would hear all different types of music. I like I like hearing different things. Last question. What's something about you that very few people would know? I think the people that are really, really close to me understand, I think, how really, truly sensitive I am and how emotional, uh, people understand, but how the emotional imp impacts me. And when something really positive happens or it's something with my loved ones or kind of what we're doing with the team, it's very, very easy for me to get emotional. Very easy for me to tear up. It's very easy for me to cry. I think only people who really, really know me would know that because that's happened in front of them. You know, that's the end of the lightning round, Joe. And I, I really appreciate your honesty and transparency and everything about you in this interview. It's been so much fun. We've really kind of covered the waterfront, but I'd like you to just to summarize those leadership principles you mentioned just one more time. When I got to Coastal Carolina, because I have 120 players that are all male, I got 25, 30 uh, assistant coaches, analysts, interns, GAs, all male. We call it a band, be a man. But that's because I had all guys. It's not sexist at all. I raised my daughters on this. So that principle is a leadership principle. A great, a, a real man, a real woman, a real leader stands on their own two feet, takes responsibility for themselves, treats others with dignity and respect, and lives with the consequences of their actions. That has been part of my belief process, my foundation upon which I build my personal life, the way I raise my children, and the foundation upon which I lived in my careers, whether they were business or whether they were football. You seem like you're just going a thousand miles an hour, even in this. I mean, you got you have so much energy. You know, what do you see as your unfinished business? You know what? I thought about this a while ago. One of the things that unfinished business maybe as a coach was to become a head college coach. I'd done that. And then I think I was doing so well, my name would pop up for, you know, big major college jobs, which I would have liked to have had, but nobody would give me an interview. You know, I was too, I was the only person like me that's ever been, been around and uh, too high a risk. 
okay? <laughs> and uh, so there's a piece of me that still thinks, well, would I want to do that? And the answer is no. And what happened was I turned 70 four years ago. And uh, I was dreading kind of just saying the word 70 because we're getting older. I understand that. And I remember having, I didn't want to celebrate my, my birthday, which was in the spring. So that year we had a family vacation. It was 25 of us. We went to, we were in Michigan someplace. And uh, my daughters did a wonderful job kind of having a birthday celebration for me. And when I got up and spoke, I said, I've thought about this for a long time. I said, you know what? How arrogant would I be to say, oh, I still need to do these handful of things in my life. From growing up in a gang to having a family and friends that I love and love me to having had uh, a football career that I'm incredibly proud of, a business career that I'm incredibly proud of, and two careers together that nobody in the planet has ever had, I could not be more grateful for way, many, many mistakes and things I'm not proud of, but I couldn't be more grateful for the life that I've had. So for me to say there's still unfinished business, that would be totally arrogant of me. I would get mad at myself if I said that. So I couldn't be more grateful for the life that I've had, and I'll continue to do it as best I can going forward for as long as I can, but I have no unfinished business. I just got to continue to take care of business and, 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 and re remember where I came from, and the gratitude aspect will never leave me. Last question here for you. What's the single best advice you can give an aspiring leader? I would go back to the whole band thing, David. I would say, say you got to have a philosophy that you believe in, that you can stand by, that holds up in every situation. And for me, it was this band. Standing on your own two feet, take responsibility of yourself, treat us with dignity and respect, live with the consequences of your actions. If every leader did that, assuming they have the skill sets, you got to have that too. Remember, you got to have both. Assuming they have skill sets, they're going to be successful. I wish our politicians had that attitude. If our, if our political system had that attitude and our country had that attitude today, we wouldn't have any of the problems we'd have. We'd be united. We wouldn't be divided. Everybody would be pulling together as opposed to blaming everybody else for things. And our political leaders would step up and do the right thing with support as opposed to spend all the time trying to get reelected and attacking everybody else. Joe, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to share your, your leadership perspective. There's a lot of wisdom in this last hour that I know everybody's going to get a heck of a lot out of. Well, David, first of all, again, it was an honor for me to be on this. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, by the way. It was clear how much you prepared for this. And I, I'm grateful for you taking the time to do that. I respect you for that. I respect what you've done in your career. And I hope one of these days our paths do cross. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be great. And continued success in whatever you pursue. I know there's a lot more coming. Thanks very much, David. And all the best to you and your family. Well, let me tell you, there's a ton of research out there that shows coaching is a skill today's leaders really need to improve on. So many people are stuck in that old model of being a boss with a my way or the highway mentality. But great leaders like Joe approach leadership with a coaching mindset. They know it's not about you. It's about serving your team. You realize it's their ability to execute and deliver that really matters. And it's your job to help them do it by giving them a clear strategy, removing obstacles, holding them accountable, and most importantly, seeing their potential and helping them reach it. That's been Joe's mentality in every step of his phenomenal career, from the sidelines of the football field to Wall Street and everywhere in between. So how can you bring that coaching mentality to your life this week? Well, here's an idea. 
At some point in the next few days, someone's going to come to you with an issue they need help with, and you're going to be tempted to tell them what to do. Instead, I want you to pause and consider what question you can ask that will help that person come up with their own idea. Any idea that you can help people come up with themselves is much better than an idea that you tell somebody to do. That's a huge piece of the coaching mentality, and it's a tool you've got to master if you want to get big things done with your team. Because if somebody comes up with an idea based on the questions you ask, and it's a good idea, they're going to own it. They're going to believe in it, and they will execute the heck out of it. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders develop a coachy mentality. Coming up next on How Leaders Lead is Mignon Francois, founder and CEO of The Cupcake Collection, a destination bakery in Nashville. I have always been a good listener. It has been my customers that have been driving the needle for me the whole time. We were one of the first food trucks in the city of Nashville. We were the very first dessert truck in the city. It was because a customer of mine emailed me and said, hey, I just got back from LA. And she said, this is the new wave of things that is coming and you should do it. And so I did it. I was not afraid to try something different. And so because I stayed connected to them, it was collaboration that was always key. So be sure to come back again next week to hear our entire conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.